Hi, this is Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. Last week, we shared my conversation with Keto de Burr, who spent 30 years at McKinsey in both India and the Middle East. He, along with his wife, also boasts an immense collection of Indian art, and he talks persuasively about the importance of having a well-rounded life. You should definitely check out the full episode if you haven't already. One of the things we spoke about was his role with the Quartet, a group tasked with mediating between Israel and the Palestinians. We wanted to share this portion of our conversation with you as a bonus episode. As head of mission of the Quartet, Quito brought his considerable business and negotiating acumen to the table, attempting to address this problem essentially from an economic perspective. His insights into this intractable issue are priceless. Here is that part of our conversation. Do you consider this to be a, a major pivot for you? Yes, very much. Because you were going off into a very different sort of environment. You, you didn't have the the backing of a of a of an organization like McKinsey, where you'd had the track record, and it was uh, it was a long shot, wasn't it? It was a very long shot. Look, I don't think anybody um, uh, had any uh, rose tinted spectacles about the probability of success on this. I mean, it was very much a um, if. If we don't have one last push at it, then it will be game over. Uh, I think Obama, if you listen to his uh, his autobiography, was pretty clear, and I think it's well known. He had no faith in Bibi. Uh, and he said, with Bibi around, this is not going to happen. He, wasn't re- he, he let John Kerry go off and do his thing because he understood it was important. Uh, but he he didn't he was not it was not Obama's priority. Yeah. Obama's priority was to get out of the Middle East, yeah. not get sucked into it. The pivot um, to Asia. The pivot to Asia, yeah. And so I think all of us on the team said we went into this saying we just got to give it one one last shot. Um, and I think we actually Obama was ultimately right. It was BB who uh, stopped what could have been a breakthrough. I think we felt quite strong that we had some good steps forward, but it just wasn't politically his agenda. It was not it was not expedient for him. And and was this the first time that the Palestinian question had been addressed from an economic angle? I'm sure that, because uh, I don't want to upset anybody who's done in the World Bank and the, who will have done work uh, on economics of Palestine. So I think quite a lot of work had been done. Most of the work that we saw and we drew on was not, if you like, ec- an integrated economic plan to to stimulate the private sector, but more looking at individual sectors. What do you do in banking? What do you do in in water? What do you do in electricity? The work that we did was to um, do some of just fundamental economic analysis about what are the op- areas of opportunity, trade, tourism, I mean, agriculture, and then go to speak to international players. We'd go and, you know, if you've got John Kerry, or the US government backing you, your ability to go and speak to almost anybody anywhere with that mandate is strong. So we got lots of access and traction with big companies. And that really helped. And then we we asked them, well, what would it take for you to invest in in Palestine? Um, What would be the preconditions and what sort of scale and how would you... So that was the type of work that we did. And I don't think uh, that had been tried before. And what's come of it now, Kito? What, what's going? Is there anything going on with this now? So I, I think the short answer is no, not really. If you look at the Kushner plan, um, 
which was released in Bahrain. Uh, that was almost all based on, with one exception about a corridor uh, between Gaza and the West Bank, uh, which we had talked about but didn't think was viable. Um, uh, all of that was based on the work that we had done. So what I would say is, is that work, um, and I, I wouldn't want to take credit for doing it, it built on a lot of work that other people had, had done, um, uh, I, I think people will still say that is a nice piece of theory, right? But under the current conditions, you can't do that. I mean, there's some very simple things that I always use to illustrate the point. The biggest challenge for investment in Palestine uh, or the Palestinian territories or the occupied, whatever word that you want to use to describe the West Bank and Gaza, um, is that it is unique in the world. It is unique and starts off being unique in the world by how it is legally classified. Is it a country? Is it a jurisdiction? What is it? And that really matters, because if you want to go and get a loan from a bank or whatever, they want to know who are the counterparties, what, what law does it fall under? So they're just lots of practical issues. And what we did when we first set up was my line, or what came out of the work that we'd done for Kerry was to say, what was needed was a development fund where money was put in so that people could do the hard work to do the very early stage analysis around what it take to do, develop a project. Because nobody in their right mind would do it on a rational basis. So take solar power. It, the West Bank generated absolutely no power at all, right? Uh, yet Jordan, which is next door, has the same sun and the same desert, was a hotspot for global solar power. And what we, one of our major projects was to do the analysis to create a solar power project in the West Bank. If you were a rational private sector guy, you were, if you looked at a project either in the West Bank or you know, let's say 100 meters away on the other side of the border in Jordan, you would always go to Jordan. In Jordan, you knew you were, you were it's a country, it's got a legal system, <laughs> it's got ministries that you can deal with. On that other side of that border, 100 meters on the other side of the border, the same sun that God gave and the same soil, the need is even greater, but it is incredibly complicated. The number of players that you have to deal with in order to make that happen, we did make it happen, but it took years of work to make it happen because you have to deal with the, with the Israelis, with the Israeli Ministry of Electricity, you have to deal with the Palestinians. Uh, it is just a mess. But once you've developed it, right, you've then said, okay, we've now done all that hard work. You could, it's then pretty easy to find the technical solutions to that, which is what's happened. So that was our idea. And um, we've had some success in that. So we have got... Um, solar power. We're the only people who've got a power project up and running in the West Bank. We have until, uh, I think it survived, we put in water projects, desalination projects in Gaza and in uh, also solar power projects in Gaza. These are very small victories, right? Uh, the amount of effort and time that went into doing that uh, is great and the returns are relatively small, but it is progress. But in reality, unless the conditions change, nobody is going to do it, 
right? Um, it, it's just too difficult. Um, yeah. Uh, it makes no sense. It just seems like the, such an intractable issue that, it, you know, the frustration levels are so enormous and the, you know, the things change, but they never really change. And, uh, you know, the, 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 all the things that the American administration did, the last one under Trump with the, 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 all the concessions that were made to Israel. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to go into politics now, but that's not the point of this podcast. But, you know, things are now de facto on the ground that are very hard to, to uproot again after that and, and, and go back to a two-state track. It's very frustrating for so many people that the, this is a very uh, impressive project that you, that you had undertaken. And when you help someone economically, it's, a, it's a going a big part to solving a lot of problems. Yeah, so, I mean, look, Palestine, occupied Palestinian territories, whatever, they are not in control. They're neither Palestine nor an authority. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if, the, if Abu Mazen needs to get the signature of a lieutenant to leave the country and cross the border... I mean, this is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what what hope does anybody else Absolutely. have? Absolutely. So, at least in my view, and I, I you know, I, I come at this not as a diplomat. I just come as it as a person on the on the balcony who's gone onto the dance floor a little bit. Is you are not? I mean, Einstein said, you know, to engage in the same behavior and expect a different outcome. The definition of madness. I mean, we're, we're well down that path. Yeah. Uh, and if if you search for truth and you really try to look at the truth, I think the truth is the two-state solution was a good effort. It was the right effort at the time. It has failed. Yeah. It has not got a future. So long as Abu Mazen is there, it won't change because for obvious reasons. But um, everything, the, the, the whole model needs to be broken yeah and until you break it you can't start you you have to start afresh um and in reality the only people with the power to bring peace to that part of the world are the israelis right the europeans have tried the norwegians have tried the americans have tried uh and it doesn't work right and the only people who can do that are the israelis it is a democracy um, peace with the Palestinians is not an issue on any of the last few elections that we've had. There is no peace movement as there used to be in Israel. It's a non-issue because the Israelis have got exactly what they want. But the thing is, is that for Israel, it's just now it's a question of only managing it and just treading water because eventually, in terms of yeah. demographics, uh, if they go for a one, one, uh, one, you know, one uh, system state, the demographics are against them. It's going to become a Palestinian majority. So, look, here's what, as you can imagine, I, then I, you know, I was in the end asked to become the head of the quartet. And when Tony um, stepped aside, I, I uh, took over many of the roles that he, he had. And then I became the de facto CEO of the two-state solution. And I would go off and have lots of dinners with Israelis. And, you know, it would always be the same. Uh, so, Mr. CEO of the two-state solution, what do you think? And initially, I, I would, I would uh, fall into the trap. It's back to the Sachin Tendulkar example, right? Um, I, I would be playing cricket against Sachin Tendulkar because the state of Israel and every intellectual have rehearsed the same line for 50 years, and they've got it down pat. They would then come up with a 284 reasons why the two-state solution is not an option. And I learned quite quickly, I'd say, right at the start of the dinner, I'd say, yeah, you know, you're right, this two-state solution isn't going to work. There's only one answer. And they'd say, what's that? 
And then they'd say the one state solution, because that's the only viable answer to the policies that you're pursuing. Then there would be silence at the dinner. And then they would say, and here are the 496 reasons that the one state solution won't work. So I said, okay, you hate the one state solution more than the two state solution. So tell me what it is, right? Um, Because the current solution isn't a solution. Right. Uh, it is for them at the moment. If you're a politician and you're only looking at four to five years, then then it's fine. But it's you know it's not it's not viable. So the reality is that it you do need to take, in my view, you need to take a big step back. You know the uh, the current model needs to be dismantled. Uh, we probably have to go to the ex ante position where there is no PA. Um, and it then becomes up to the Israelis to solve. My one and only insight to add to this whole debate is you have to ask the question, why do countries stop occupation? So why did the US leave Afghanistan? Why did they leave Vietnam? The answer is, it costs too damn much. The return on investment on war and occupation is terrible. So why is it that Israel um, is quite happy to keep on occupying for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years? And look at it more closely. Actually, um, when they understood that it was going to be a bad return on investment, they left Gaza just like that. They left Gaza in the same way that the U.S. left Afghanistan. This is just too expensive. We'll go. So they've done the rational business thing, right? If I were a private equity player looking at the portfolio of Israel, I would have dumped Gaza just like that. But they've kept Jerusalem or the parts of Jerusalem and the West Bank under occupation. Why is that, right? Why is it that the same guys who dropped Gaza the moment they figured out it was going to cost them too much in terms of blood and money, that they've kept the rest? And the answer is, for them, occupation is a profit center. It's not a cost center. Occupation for Israel is a profit center, not a cost center. Until occupation for Israel becomes a cost center, They will continue to occupy. And it's a profit center in what way? For a start, they have to take absolutely no responsibility for Gaza. They make make money out of Gaza. I mean, here here is a situation where it is an affront to humanity, what is happening in Gaza. Uh, And they bomb it regularly and they... And every time they rebuild, it's the the international community that supports people uh, for food and education. In, in Gaza, and then whenever it gets bombed, it's the international community that rebuilds it. And it all has to come through Israel. So they make a lot of money through that. You would think that uh, with a border with Jordan, a lot of the trade Jordan of, with, of, of the West Bank would go through Jordan, but it all comes through Israel, almost all of it, well over 90%. Uh, you try to get a bag of cement uh, through uh, the 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 border with Jordan, and you'll be into trouble because there are monopolies in, in Israel, and it's a very managed a very managed economy. Um, the co- 
nearly all the imports into into the West Bank. So it's a uh, it's a racket. The, it's a it's a racket. Well, also in addition to that, no country on earth has received more aid than Israel. For sure, right? it's received over a hundred billion dollars worth of aid from Germany. Uh, it's received well over a hundred billion dollars of aid from the U.S. Um, the rebuilding of Europe, by the way. Um, through the Marshall Plan was about 100 billion in today's dollars. So it's received at least twice the amount of money that Western Europe received for rebuilding after the Second World War. And it does that because it's, you know, uh, there's a lot of good reasons, historical reasons, but, you know, a very important element for continuing those supplies of funding is because uh, Israel is viewed as being a victim and under threat. But, but having uh, said that, we know that America is retrenching across the globe, especially from the Middle East. The money is drying up. Uh, it's like the end of an empire, it feels, at least w w when you're looking at the U.S. And will it have the wherewithal and the financial ability to keep propping up Israel? That's a big, there's a big question mark on that. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in five years, but 10 years down the line, Will they still be the backer? I think there's a big question mark on that. Yes, I mean, I, I think that the, from the financial side, I think they will continue to to do it. I mean, look, they they the military aid is about three point eight billion dollars a year. I mean, that's sort of like a cost of an aircraft carrier group. Yeah, but it's uh, all relative, Kito, isn't it? It's, it's all relative. I mean, the U.S. I think is is really having a uh, having to look itself in the mirror right now, and and I don't know if 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 this is considered um, on their top priorities anymore. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that the issues, it certainly isn't on their top priority at the moment. Uh, don't forget Obama, who's perceived as being the most sort of anti-Israel of all the recent presidents. He was the guy who signed a, a $38 billion aid pledge for the Israeli military. Yeah. Um, and this is to... Uh, and. Israel continues to receive more aid than any other country in the world. I know Afghanistan historically had been at the top, but I think it's still that at the moment. Um, I think that the changes will, I think what will drive change is not going to be fiscal. Uh, I think it's going to be social and cultural. I think that the UAE and the Gulf countries, peace with Israel was a important political strategic move in that a lot of the narrative that sustains international support for Israel is to do that it's surrounded by enemies and it is a victim. It's the only decent house in a bad neighborhood. That's going to be quite hard to sustain if Saudi comes on board. I know you'll still have Lebanon and Syria and I think Hezbollah is a, is a real issue. Um, and it's not that they don't have enemies, but I think that will come down quite a lot. Uh, I think the Black Lives Matter movement um, is uh, actually going to probably be one of the most important issues of all. Uh, I had an interesting dinner with Abu Mazen and his son a few years ago, and Abu Mazen was obviously talking about the two-state solution and his dedication to that. And uh, Abu Mazen's son said, I love my dad and I respect the fact that he's dedicated his life to this, but that's finished. The our generation understands that this is an issue around social justice. And this was four to five years ago and, and about human rights. Uh, and that will change. To be fair, your pet peeve of 
social media has a very large part to play in a positive way on this. It absolutely does. And you see that a lot, actually. So you're absolutely correct on that. Um, so I think that the you know, and when, when I was uh, at the quartet, one of the most active groups of congressmen and senators was from the Black Caucus, because the Black Caucus sees a strong link and sympathy for the Palestinian situation. Yeah. And they, under, they see the parallel. And with Black Lives Matter, I think there is a much greater scrutiny around social justice and human rights, which is clearly being violated on a in many places, right? So I mean, it's, but you know, given the fact that it is on such, it is being violated on such a sustained basis, but from a country which you know, it, it's you know, on a per head basis, it's richer than the UK, France, Japan, Italy, hardly in in need of mm-hmm. huge levels of aid. Um, we've basically been responsible for creating a lot of the Israel that that's that funding it in a way we've never done anywhere else um, for many very good and necessary reasons. Right? Uh, I, I think we're all better off having a strong and vibrant Israel. I mean, I, I always ask to, to my Arab colleagues who are sometimes hostile towards Israel, I said, what would you like? Would you like a, a, a Middle East that looks more like Syria or would you like to have a Middle East that looks more like Israel? Yeah. And I think everybody would come to their own answer on that. But having said all of that, in terms of the pressure and the movement, I think the, the strategic shift away from the Middle East to China, the politi- that political shift is profound, right? It's happened with Obama. It was the one thing that Trump didn't change at all, it being taken up by Biden. That's not going to change. The Americans never want to get sucked in. Yeah. I don't think they want to lose another American life in the Middle East. Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next. You can help our show to grow by leaving us a positive review in your favorite podcast player. Our next episode will be next Monday, so don't miss it. Hope you can join us then.